Last week we began our study of Romans chapter 8, which is like a jewel on the ring of the uh, book of Romans. It is probably the most popular and certainly the greatest chapter in terms of its revelation of uh, something that is of tremendous significance for us as Christians. We're in the section of the book dealing with our sanctification, how uh, God makes us more like his son. And uh, chapter 6 talks about our relationship to sin. We are no longer bound to it. Chapter 7 talks about our relationship to the law. We, we are uh, free from it. We are at liberty. And chapter 8 talks about our relationship to God as justified people, people who have been declared righteous by God. And basically, our relationship to God is that we are secure now because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses, first 11 verses of this chapter, and I'm just going to read those so that we'll get the connection, and then we can go on from there. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are walking according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are walking according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the things of the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, that is, unbelievers, cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Every true believer in Christ possesses the Spirit. And if Christ is in you, or since Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who, who indwells you. This brings us to, to verse 12 and to the application of this for us as the readers of this epistle. The application is in verses 12 and 13. So then, that indicates that a conclusion is being drawn, of course. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, and Paul could have added, but to the Spirit, to live according to the Spirit. But he broke off at that point because he wanted to say a little more about the flesh. So then, we are not under obligation, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. 
Death is the eventual outcome of living according to the flesh, giving free reign, following the dictates of our flesh rather than the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But if by the Holy Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the contrast is quite clear. The question is, of course, how do we do this? If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, hopefully all of us want to do that, but how do we do it? How do we put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit? Well, it's really simple, of course, and that is as we are faced with temptations to live according to the flesh, we call upon the Holy Spirit to help us do the will of God rather than follow the flesh, follow our sinful human nature. And I'm sure every Christian has experienced the help that God gives at a time like that. Uh, As we are faced with a particular temptation to yield to the flesh, to give in to sinful gratification, and uh, we ask the Lord for help, he provides that help. And as we learned in chapter 6, we are no longer slaves of sin. He has broken those chains. And now because we do possess the Holy Spirit, as we read earlier in this chapter, the Holy Spirit is in position to come to our aid so that we can put to death the deeds of the body with his help. And the result of that is life. Not talking about eternal life, eternal death here at all. The issue is physical life, physical death. Following the dictates of the flesh tends to shorten life. It tends to make the quality of a Christian's life less than it would be if we followed the Spirit. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God... These are sons of God. Now, Galatians 5.18 is another verse that tells us that all Christians are led by the Spirit. Uh, Paul has just told us that every Christian possesses the Spirit. In Galatians 5.18, we read that we are led by the Spirit, like a guide leads a person along a mountain pathway. So the Holy Spirit helps us know the way that we should take in life to avoid pitfalls and dangers. And he does that mainly through the scriptures, though subjective guidance is involved as well. If we are being led by the Spirit of God, this is an evidence that we are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In chapter 6, we learn that we were free from bondage to, to sin. And uh, here we learn that we have not received a spirit that leads us into another kind of slavery. Uh, Being justified by faith, we do not become slaves of God. We become sons of God. 
We are drawn into his family. It's an entirely different kind of relationship. Slavery leads to fear. Adoption as sons leads to familiarity. Abba, Father. Abba is the uh, transliteration of the Aramaic word for father. And the translators usually do not translate this word simply because the word uh, sounds like a word that a baby would say and often does. Abba, Abba. You know, this is often the first word that a child utters. And uh, it means father. Uh, It's a familiar term, daddy. Father, of course, is the translation of the Greek word pater, which also means father. So it's father, father, really. But the translators usually have left the Aramaic word there to help us to appreciate the fact that our relationship with God as adopted sons is now very familiar. That we can call out to him in baby language, even, father, daddy. That's the kind of familiar relationship we have with God, having been set free from our slavery to sin and brought into the family of God through adoption. In John chapter 3, of course, the emphasis is on new birth. We are born into the family of God. But here, uh, Paul tells us that we are also made a part of God's family in a double way. We are not only given new life, but we are brought in by adoption as his sons. So we are doubly secure, you see, as children of God. We are born into his family as his sons through the new birth, and we are also adopted as sons into his family. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Two witnesses to the fact that we actually are the sons of God, the Holy Spirit and our human spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit bears witness through the word of God, where we are told that we are the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit uh, is responsible for the scriptures. And so his witness is an objective witness, but also, as Christians, there is something within us. There is our human spirit that also bears witness to the fact that we belong to God. Now, many people have experienced this when they trust Christ for the first time. It may be that they have uh, been struggling with sin and and, uh, are greatly convicted by their need of salvation and uh, feel like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, who has a huge burden on his back, is going through life trying to figure out how to to get rid of this, this huge burden of guilt and shame and they hear the gospel, and they trust in Christ, and, and they feel that the burden has been lifted. It's been rolled off them. They wake up in the morning and feel like new people, free for the first time, forgiven. And undoubtedly, that has been the experience of many people in this room. When you came to Christ, that is probably how you felt. That is the witness of our human spirit, 
So there are two witnesses to our adoption as sons. And in the Old Testament, of course, two witnesses were necessary to establish anything that was very significant. Verse 17, And if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Since we are children of God by adoption, we enter into a relationship with God that makes us eligible for an inheritance. We become his heirs, not just his babies. You know, in the, in the uh, Israelite family, it was the firstborn that became the heir of the family, and the other children just got a little of the inheritance, but the firstborn got a double portion of his inheritance. All the children of God become heirs as well as children. We are in a position to inherit from God, uh, and this points to future blessings that we will obtain uh, when we see the Lord and are with him. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as Jesus Christ became the firstborn among many brethren, uh, the firstborn from among the dead through his resurrection, and enters into the major portion of the inheritance that God will bestow on his beloved sons, we too enter into an inheritance, not as great as Christ's, but uh, magnificent nonetheless. Since indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. We, are, we participate in the sufferings of Christ as well as in his future glory. That is typical experience for every child of God. Now, what kind of sufferings is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about all the sufferings in life that we uh, experience because we are the children of God. If you are identified as a child of God in the world, you are going to experience some suffering. Uh, perhaps it will be uh, physical persecution. Perhaps it will be social ostracization. Uh, perhaps it will be uh, the lack of certain opportunities that uh, may be given to others at work or in other ways. These... Uh, are all part of the sufferings that Christians endure because we are the children of God. But we also, just as Jesus suffered because of his commitment to the will of God, um, and we do too, we will enter into glory as Jesus did because of his commitment to the will of God. We will be glorified with him. And this, the first mention of this word, here in verse 17, glorified, uh, opens a whole new section of Paul's thought that goes from verses 18 through verse 25, in which he explains further our present sufferings and future glory. Our salvation is like a three-stage rocket. The first stage of it is justification, in which we trust Christ as our Savior. It's like when a rocket lifts off from the earth. It's that stage in life when we are being separated from that which held us back in the past. The second stage is, is our sanctification, 
And that's when the rocket has separated from the earth and is on the way to its new destination. There is some, still some pull back to the earth. It is overcoming that pull as it goes through this stage, and that is the present stage of our Christian experience. But the third stage is our glorification, and that is when we touch down in our heavenly home. It's when we arrive at the moon, so to speak, when our journey is over, and when we are in a new environment, an atmosphere, when everything becomes new for us, and we experience the glory that uh, God has for us. For Christians, it's not going to be a sterile environment like the moon. It's going to be a glorious environment, much more glorious than anything we have experienced so far. We were thinking about that person who was leading us in thoughts about that in the last service at 9 o'clock. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul says, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. As we go through our Christian life, every Christian at some time or another says to himself or herself, is it really worth it? Is what I am giving up to follow Jesus Christ worth it? Shouldn't I just really just kick back and live for the present? After all, I've never been where the Bible says I'm going. I've never seen the things that it says I will see. Maybe it's all a figment of somebody's imagination. Is it really worth it? Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us in the future. You can think of the most wonderful experience you have ever had in your life. Multiply that by infinity, and that will be a small taste of glorification. For the anxious longing of the creation, the created earth, the cosmos, everything that has been created, awaits waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Not only human beings, but all of the creation is waiting for the glorification of God's sons. Uh, just about every 4th of July, we go to some kind of a fireworks display. I suppose most of us do. And uh, we see those huge uh, aerial displays. But uh, you know the fireworks are wrapped up in very humble packages before they are lit. They're just wrapped up in brown paper. But when the fuse is ignited, they go up in the air, and the display is absolutely breathtaking. Well, that's the way it is with us now. Right now, we're just wrapped in brown paper. But the time is coming when we are going to be glorified. And when we are, the whole creation is going to marvel at what God has done in us. For the creation was subjected to futility at the fall, not of its own will, 
but because of him who subjected it, that is, God. Man's rebellion in the Garden of Eden affected all of creation. We find this repeatedly in the early chapters of Genesis. Adam is told that he's going to have to work hard because the creation will not cooperate with his desire to wring a living from it. And ever since, the creation has been fighting. When a tornado comes through Texas, we see evidence of that. The creation devastates areas. When a fire breaks out in a forest, that forest is devastated, and it has to struggle to come back. And that's a part of the fall. It was subjected in in futility in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When our glorification takes place, God is going to lift the curse on the earth as well. And uh, he's going to restore the creation to its pristine glory. Um, This is a reference to millennial conditions. Uh, For example, described in Isaiah 35 and many other passages of the Old Testament. Uh, Some of you may remember the uh, earthquake that uh, rocked Mexico City in 1985. I remember watching uh, that on television, and there were just these mountains of of concrete that uh, were uh, were a product of upheaval because of this earthquake, and there was dust everywhere, and people were in chaos in Mexico City. And... uh, As I was watching the television, the little identification of the source came on on the screen, and it said, courtesy, S-I-N. And that stood for Spanish International Network. But it reminded me that it was sin that was responsible for this kind of creational upheaval that uh, Mexico City was experiencing. But that's going to come to an end because God is going to straighten that out when he glorifies us. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. It's straining to produce its fruit. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting our redemption as sons, the redemption of our body. Our immaterial part has been redeemed, but we await the redemption of our bodies when they will become free of the things that restrict us. Uh, We were at the off party last night, and there was a lot of talk about how the human body is being restricted by various ailments and and, uh, problems, and how this individual in that is looking forward to an operation that will will, uh, set the body right again. 
and uh, our, our bodies groan within ourselves. We look forward to that time when they will be set right, when we will be adopted as God's sons. Right now, we just have the, the first fruits of the Spirit, just the first installment of God's gifts to us. Um, you know, when you go in a grocery store, sometimes you pass a place where a representative is handing out samples, and you get this little tiny cup of peanut butter or jam or whatever it is, just enough to whet your appetite to buy a jar. Well, that little cup is like what we have right now. The Holy Spirit within us is just a foretaste of what his ministry in and through us in the future is going to be like when this wonderful bursting forth of our new life will take place at our glorification. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one also hope for what he sees? There's more to come, in other words. We live by hope. Christian is not a person who lives on explanations. A Christian is a person who lives on promises. We look forward to what God has promised. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we, we wait eagerly for it. The fact that we do, in fact, believe these promises and hope for what God has said is coming leads us to persevere through our trials and sufferings now. Mary has a little plaque on her window that says, perhaps today. It's a reminder to persevere because the Lord could come back today. That hope is an incentive. And with that hope, of course, we should not be fearful. As we anticipate the future, we can look forward to this great display of God's glory through us in our glorification. And that should make the prospect of dying or the prospect of rapture less fearful for us. Verses 26 through 30 talk about our place in God's sovereign plan. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself, who is within us, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. As we go through this life and as we struggle with temptation and with sin, with our mortality, we cry out to God, but sometimes we can't even put into words what we need, how we feel. And verse 26 assures us that in those times, we have someone who prays for us, the Holy Spirit himself, makes our unutterable, agonizing cries articulate in the ears of God. He prays for us. Now, many charismatic believers understand this verse to teach that the Holy Spirit prays through us, and they take it as an indication that when a person prays in tongues, it is the Holy Spirit praying through them. But that is not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about the Holy Spirit interceding for us when we cannot verbalize what we want. Now, isn't that encouraging? Isn't that 
gratifying because sometimes we just don't know even what to pray for. We sense a need, but we don't know how to frame it in words. We don't know how to express it. And we can rest assured that God understands because the Holy Spirit is interceding for us at times like that. There are times when mental processes just break down, when emotions take over, when we can't verbalize, yet God understands and he knows how we are feeling. What a wonderful, wonderful promise this is. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. God himself is searching our hearts. He is uh, searching your heart this morning to discover what is there and to know what the mind of the Spirit is, what the Spirit is, is praying for, for you. The parent of a child who has trouble speaking would sometimes put the child's word, thoughts into words for the child. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Even when we can't verbalize these things, even when we can't control our sufferings and our circumstances, God assures us that he's going to work everything together and bring something good out of it. Not that everything is good. The verse is not saying that everything that happens to a Christian is good. It's not good when a child gets hit by a truck. It's not good when, when people do things that they shouldn't do. But God causes even those things to produce something good. I can remember watching my mother bake a cake when I was a little boy. She'd get all these ingredients on the, on the table. She'd get the flour. She'd get the sugar. She'd get the salt. She'd get the baking powder. Uh, she'd get some spices. And I can remember sticking my finger in each one of those things and tasting it. And I thought, that except for the sugar, nothing tasted good. And yet when she put them all together, it was really great. It was delicious. And that's how God deals with our lives too. He takes all the ingredients of our lives and he puts them together and brings something wonderful out of that. And we can just think about, about the experience of various believers throughout biblical history. Think about Joseph. I was reading about Joseph this morning in my devotions in, uh, in Genesis 39. Joseph's life looked like it was a mess. It was out of control. And yet God did something with Joseph's life that nobody believed would happen. It was so good. Made him the savior of his generation in the world. Jacob was the same, and we could, we could go through many examples. I read of an incident involving George Frederick Handel, who wrote Handel's Messiah, you know. And apparently he wrote that great, great oratorio at a time in his life when he was terribly depressed, when he was out of money, he was in poor health, 
He'd taken retreat from everybody else. He'd hold himself up in his room, and he was just praying because he was a believer. He was agonizing with God about his condition. He was so depressed and feeling so terrible. And it was then when God inspired him to write Handel's Messiah. Something good came out of that. That's how, that's how God deals with us. And I read about a cowboy who was applying for insurance, and his agent said, have you ever had any accidents? This guy was a professional rodeo cowboy. And after a moment's reflection, he said, uh, no, I don't think so. But a, a Bronco did kick in two of my ribs last summer. And a couple of years ago, a rattlesnake bit me on the heel. The doctor said, wouldn't you call those accidents? The cowboy said, no, they did it on purpose. <laughs> and sometimes the bad things that happen to us are done on purpose by other people, but God causes even those things to work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, God knew us before we were born. He knew us before we were created. And he called us before we were born. And he predestined us. He determined our destiny as his children, those whom he would adopt, to become conformed to the image of his son. See, that's where it's all going. It's all going toward Christ-likeness. And James and other New Testament writers help us to realize that the problems and the trials that we face are all tools that God uses to knock the rough edges off of our lives as he shapes us into people who bear the image of his Son. He is forming Jesus in every one of us that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, that Jesus Christ might be preeminent. He was, of course, firstborn by his resurrection, and this gives hope to us that as Jesus experienced resurrection, so we will experience resurrection as well. When you send a photograph off to the photographer and to the studio to get it developed, they put this piece of paper in harsh chemicals, but the harsh chemicals bring out the image that was imprinted on it when the shutter was open. When we were justified, when we trusted Christ as his Savior, the image of Christ was impressed upon us. But it takes the harsh experiences of life to bring out that image in us. And God is developing that within each one of us. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is the process that God has gone through. He started out with his predestining us before creation. God had you in his mind even before creation. 
And then he called you to himself. The gospel came to you. You believed it. Then he declared you righteous when you trusted in Christ. And he glorifies you in the future. Now, this sounds like glorification is already past, but it's not. It's future. Why did Paul talk about it as though it was past? Because it's as good as if it were past. Because he will do it, he's promised to do it, we can count on the fact that he will. Then the last part of this chapter, the great climax of this symphony of our salvation, talks about our eternal security. What then shall we say to these things? How can we bring it all together? If God is for us, who is against us? Since God is on our side, who can be against us? We have a strong bodyguard. We have someone who is with us, who is going to make sure that we get through to the very end. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. As he declared us righteous in justification, so he will glorify us in the future. He will do it. For he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If if God has given us the very best that he could give, won't he also give us other things that he has promised? He gave us his son, his unspeakable gift. God actually gave himself, not a thing, but himself. He delivered his own son up for us all, and that is the guarantee that he will also freely give us all things that he has promised us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Are we in danger of standing before God and somebody saying, like Satan said of Job, well, he really doesn't deserve to be here? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. The judge on the bench is the one who has declared us righteous. Who is the one who condemns us? Who is the prosecuting attorney in this scene? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He is at the judge's right hand, and he is the one who has laid down his life for us. And now he intercedes for us. So he's not going to be against us. He's not going to turn against us. You'll notice that Christ intercedes for us, verse 34, and the Spirit intercedes for us, verse 26. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, trouble, shall distress, various forms of anguish, or persecution, legal persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Jesus experienced just about every one of those things in his life. But none of those separated him from the love of God, and they will not separate us either. This is common experience for the children of God. And so Paul quotes 
uh, Psalm 44 to establish that this is common experience for believers. For thy sake, the psalmist said, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Imagine a sheep conquering. (laughs) Horses conquer, not sheep. But we, sheep, will overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's the sheep mounted on the horse. That's the key. For I am convinced, I stand convinced, Paul said, this is a very strong way of expressing this thought, that neither death nor life, when we die, it's not going to separate us from from God's love for us, nor if we live to be 110, nor angels, nor principalities. Principalities are a, a high order of angelic beings, nor things present in our experience, nor things to come which we may fear and dread about the future, nor powers of any kind, energies, nor height, nor depth, Space cannot separate us from God's love, nor any other created thing. Now that, my friends, includes us. It includes you and me. People often say, well, yeah, nothing can separate me from God's love, but what if I separate myself from him? What if I turn my back on him? No, no other created thing. That includes the believer himself. Because God has committed to save us completely. He's committed to taking us all the way to heaven. Even though we sin and fail and root. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You'll notice that this is the third reference to the love of God in this passage, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, in the middle of this passage. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Who shall be able to separate us from the love of God? Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not just God's love. It's God's love for his own that reaches out to us and enfolds us. You who are parents know that uh, often you have wrapped your children in your arms as an expression of your love to keep them from some form of danger. And that's the picture that Paul has painted for us here. We are in the arms of God who has not only given us new life and the new birth, but who has adopted us as his sons, who has made us his heirs, who has committed to glorifying us in the future, removing us from the very presence of sin eventually, and nothing can keep us Nothing can free us from his loving grasp. Well, our time is up, so let's thank the Lord together. We do thank you, our Lord, for this 
wonderful revelation of your commitment to us. We will never understand why you have loved us this way. We can only say thank you for doing it. And we pray that we will appreciate our security as objects of your calling and of your love. That we may use that security as a foundation for living life, for reaching out to others, and for serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.